From climate change, to DEI and social justice, to economic inequality and workers' rights, a range of global challenges are at the forefront of people's minds. As we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, business leaders are looking for guidance on how to respond, how to do better not just for their shareholders, but for their people, their planet, and the broader communities they're a part of. There's no shortage of ideas on what is needed, but very few companies have succeeded in putting those ideas into practice. As part of Intentional Future's own stakeholder-centered strategy initiative, CEO Michael Dix is embarking on a journey, a series of conversations with business leaders on what's to be done. Join us as we hunt for the how. Our guest today is the former chief environmental strategist at Microsoft and currently the managing director and co-founder of Commonwealth Equity, which is an investment firm focused on companies participating in the circular economy. He's a leading voice in ESG and sustainability, also happens to be a longtime friend. Rob Bernard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. Thank you for asking me to join you. Really good to have you. Um, let's let's start with uh, your background um, and specifically the 10 year or so chapter at Microsoft uh, focusing on sustainability. Um, would love to hear wh where you, what got you into that, interested in the first place, uh, what it was like when you got started and how your work there and Microsoft's relationship to sustainability evolved over time. Great. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Like, you know, it's easy today to lose perspective on how the world thought about sustainability, let alone ESG, circa 2010. You know, if we go back 10, 11 years ago, um, there weren't chief sustainability officers at most companies, not even at the Fortune 500. And so, you know, I was very fortunate. I'd been at Microsoft for a little over a decade at that point and had some great experiences. And uh, I got the sort of opportunity to pursue working with, at the time, the Clinton Foundation on trying to create a calculator for how do you, if you're a city, how do you calculate carbon? Nobody had actually figured this thing out yet. And so I started to get into, well, what do you need to do to calculate carbon? And that sort of led me down a whole path where I'm like, you know, our company really needs to be much more active in sustainability than we have been. Uh, fortunately, you know, I, I feel very lucky to have been at a company like Microsoft, where in general, more often than not, we're, they were kind of ahead of the, the trend. And so through a series of discussions, the company decided to create a, you know, equivalent of a chief sustainability officer, or we called it a chief environmental strategist. Uh, and because I had sort of spent time thinking about this for quite a while and actually had done some work there, I was fortunate enough to get the role and then define what it meant to be a you know chief environmental strategist at a you know Fortune 500 company. And what did that look like in year one? Well, yeah, it's a really good question. So I think there were sort of three phases. Year one was sort of where are we going? What are we doing? How do we sort of in effect play defense? Because part of the the catalyst was that Greenpeace was actually lobbying against Microsoft. And we were moving into the cloud. There was a big concern. There had been a study that came out that said something like 3% of energy use um, was going to be going towards data centers within the next few years. And then that was going to double every few years. And you know, if you, you did the math and extrapolated, there was some crazy large percentage of global energy that was going to be consumed by, by data centers. And the big data center operators at the time, which Microsoft clearly was going to be one, didn't have a strategy. So part of it was, hey, stay out of trouble. 
make sure that we're being thoughtful and you know don't don't hit any trip wires in the marketplace. I call that even pre-phase one. And then phase one was, well, if we're going to do this, let's actually think about what we want to do. Phase two was, then how do you move to leadership? Right. In phase two, we ended up doing some carbon neutrality. Maybe we'll talk about that, but we were ahead of the curve in terms of being the first company that at least I'm aware of on a global basis did a carbon tax. You know, and then phase three was really how do you create competitive advantage? How do you create new programs? How do you create investment portfolios? All sorts of really interesting stuff. And, you know, that sort of led me to becoming a you know private equity and investing in sustainability, even outside the context of Microsoft. Sure. Thanks for that. And, and let's go there. Let's uh, let's set the groundwork for what you're doing right now with Commonwealth. Sure. So um, my partners and I um, basically came together pre-COVID, you know, about two years ago almost now. And we said, look, we think that there's a massive opportunity for investment around the thesis of how do you actually create highly profitable companies that are also circular? And we can we can talk about you know how to define circularity, but in general, you know, if you want to take waste streams and turn them into other products, either back into what they were originally, or you want to upcycle them into other products, how do you actually do that and do that in a profitable way? Because my experience had been, and still is, frankly, that most of the companies who claim to do circularity fall down in one of two areas. One, they're not really circular. They have some small component of their business, which is circular. And so they're doing a little bit of greenwashing, unfortunately. And they haven't actually figured out how to be a real circular company. The second is if they are circular, very often they're sort of betting on cost curve effects, right? They want to come down the learning curve and eventually they're going to get profitable. And that that's not really a great investment thesis to hope that they get to profitability at some point. And so how can we enter into this market? Uh, and I was fortunate enough to partner with two people who have fairly extensive experience in, in this area. And let's talk about some of the companies you're investing in already. Yeah, so we invested our, our first company, which we're, we're now public about, is a company called Ecore International. I don't don't imagine that people on here will have heard of them, but if you've ever been to any gym in the United States, you've worked out on their product. They're about 45, 50% of all gym floors in the United States, Equinox, Planet Fitness, you know, your hotel chains, Marriott, Hilton, all those kind of places. And what what you're working out on is actually, depending on which product line, somewhere between at the low end, 55% up to 97% upcycled rubber materials. And so it's a company that's been around 30 years, and we invested and took a controlling interest in that company uh, just several months ago. And what attracted you to it? What attracted me was the two things that I said don't usually exist, actually exist in this company, which is they are really circular, right? They use very, very little virgin product. Uh, like I said, most of their products are north of 90% upcycled materials. Uh, and so they're taking stuff that would otherwise be burned. And I can talk about how horrible the waste stream is for rubber tires in the United States. Uh, in fact, maybe I'll go there and then I'll come back to the second issue around profitability. But just to give you context, I'm going to ask the, the listener to think about how many pounds of rubber tires do we discard every year in the United States? The answer is north of 6 billion pounds of rubber tire waste. Okay, And now you go, well, what happens to that? I mean, you don't see it lying on the side of the roads as much as it, you know when I was a kid, you used to see that stuff where you'd see outdoor fires. But over 50% of that, over 3.5 billion pounds of rubber waste gets burned every year in the United States. And its carbon factor is actually worse than coal. Now, it has slightly better energy content. So, on an equivalent basis, it's slightly lower than coal on a like a BTU basis, but on a volumetric basis, it's actually worse than coal. I'm like, how can we be in a world where it's okay to take this highly engineered 
material that you can put thousands of pounds on and run down the highway at 60, 70, 80 miles an hour, and then we're going to burn it at the end of its life. That doesn't make any sense. So this company about 25 years ago figured out how to actually upcycle these things and turn them into high-performance surfaces based on the chemistry of what's in a tire. The second area is they're really profitable. Now, this is the cool part, right? Like the myth, and maybe we'll get into some myths of ESG, but like one of the biggest myths I always had when I was at Microsoft is like, you can't do this profitably. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we can take a waste stream and we can make this thing super profitable. So think about when you take your tire to the tire state, like to whatever, you know, you go to a Walmart to change your tires or any other place in the United States. You're usually paying for them to take your tire and dispose of it. It's called a tipping fee. Okay. Well, there's a subsidized stream of waste, in the, and there are many of them. We're just happening to be talking about rubber. It's like, okay, so now tire company, changing company X, puts them in a trailer, and now they got to pay some amount of money, depending on where you're in the country, to ship that stuff and put it somewhere. Like, I don't want to go in a landfill. I certainly don't want it to get burned. I want to take that stuff, and I want to turn it into a high-performance materials. Great. That's the business model. Right? And of course, it requires IP and all sorts of other stuff. But the general premise is we're taking this waste stream and we are getting paid to haul it and then we're converting it and out the other side comes high value products across, you know, with, whether it's gyms, but it's also in operating rooms at hospitals. Because, you know, think about a doctor. Would you rather stand on a rubberized kind of floor that gives you sort of energy as opposed to a concrete floor or something that's super hard like you'll see in a lot of hospitals? That's awesome. Uh, and it's great context for everything else we're going to talk about. Let's um, build on that, but um, pivot into just sort of definitionally, let's talk about ESG. What is it? Why does it matter more than ever now? Um, and, and what are you seeing in terms of it taking hold, maybe building upon some of what you were just sharing? Sure. So if we think about you know ESG, right, environment, social governance, it is a, I'll call it somewhat ill-defined and amorphous kind of thing, right? Because very similar to, frankly, where the sustainability market was when I started back in you know, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of companies are self-defining it somewhat in their self-interest, right? So if I do a lot of environmental stuff, I'm going to focus on the E. If I'm a company that's got a great social cause and believes heavily in social justice issues, I'm going to focus on the S. And you know, most companies don't focus outwardly a lot on the governance, but I'd actually argue that governance is sort of the foundation for what you do everywhere in this thing, right? And so how do you think about what is ESG? I think the market still hasn't fully defined that, but it's clearly you've got an environmental strategy and we can talk about different phases of maturity there. Same on the social side. How do you think about everything from uh, you know, gender representation, social-based issues, local community engagement, global engagement, depending on what you do uh, in the social area. And then the governance is actually, do you have a framework which makes this thing happen? And I would argue most of the companies that tend to fail, they fail on the G side because they, they have great rhetoric, but they haven't actually figured out how to implement anything yet. And then how do you see, and there may not be good answers for this, but I'm interested in your take on the relationship between ESG and stakeholder capitalism. Are they synonymous? Are there important differences? How do they relate to each other? Yeah. You know, again, I think both of these terms are super amorphous, right? And just very vague, but to me, stakeholder capitalism is broader than ESG. So ESG has to be part of how you think about stakeholders, you know, but even in the context of the business we've invested in, there are many things that happen outside of ESG, which 
absolutely impacts stakeholders. Do you have an example that would land this with folks listening? Yeah. So, so in this business that I was describing that we bought, we both purchased directly and then sourced through other people tires to turn into products, right? So we have an environmental commitment. We have a commitment around carbon, all the kind of, and we can get into more detail on ESG, but we have a whole series of ESG commitments. We have, we've created a body at the board level, which I'll talk about in governance. And so we're off to the races on ESG, but the way the tire industry works, and I didn't know this before, which it basically is you've got the big companies who change tires, but then you've got a lot of sort of smaller tire shops around the country. And people will haul those tires to waste facilities. Now, what they'll do to make a living is they'll want to take basically tires off the trucks, literally, that can be resold or off a car. And then they can resell them because they still have good tread life left. And they can sell those for 10 to 20 or 40 times what they can get for basically a discarded scrap tire. In fact, they've got to pay to get rid of these tires, right? So now all of a sudden you've got a revenue stream for a stakeholder, which is I haul truck tires from shops to processing facilities. So in the interest of the stakeholders, you want those people to be profitable. Now, there's two different philosophies in the industry. Philosophy one is give me all the tires, including the good tires, and I'll go sell the good tires and make 30, 40, 100, whatever dollars per tire. Great. Now I'm increasing my profitability. But if you actually want a healthy ecosystem, you want the people who are physically picking up the tires to be able to take some of those tires and resell them themselves. right? And so in a world of stakeholder capitalism, I would argue, yeah, that would fall into stakeholder capitalism, which is I want the stakeholders to actually be successful. But in the world of ESG, maybe you can put it under S and talk about a social thing, but it's not normally going to fall, in my opinion, under an ESG strategy unless you've got a super broad ESG approach. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a super interesting example because some of the differences that I'm picking up on might be, and tell me you agree, thinking a little more broadly about the ecosystem you're operating in, the value that those players might need in order to thrive and want in order to continue doing business with you. And then thinking longer term, because if you ladder that forward in five years, if you're the only one in town that actually enables them to make more money through this side business and maximize that, they're going to choose you over the competitors and that will uh, shape the market and reinforce your leadership position. Yeah, exactly. That's the hope, um, which is you're creating a healthier ecosystem. Right. And it's interesting. I mean, now we can look backwards, especially, you know, in light of events that have been happening around Exxon. I mean, you and I have talked about this over the years, literally. Right. Now it's sort of coming to bear in terms of companies that didn't pay attention to ESG or stakeholder capitalism, or in fact, try to cram down investors and say, look, it's just about shareholders, 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 shareholders. I don't much care about stakeholders. They're now starting to literally pay the price for that. Right. Like if we could go back 10 years, would you want to invest in a bunch of ESG or just the market itself, you know, S&P or NASDAQ? Or do you want to invest in Exxon circa 2011? Right. And what's the answer there? Well, the answer is a resounding. You don't want to invest in Exxon because Exxon, I charted it out. I think they're down something like 23% or if we had invested in June 2011. Right? And the S&P and NASDAQ are up multiples, like two, three, four times. So where do you want to put your money? Companies that did not historically, and they did great prior to that. Like prior to 2010, you didn't want to pay attention to stakeholder capitalism or ESG. You did great. That world is gone. 
Morningstar just came out with a report, like I think in April. Um, the amount of flows into ESG funds, 2021 first quarter versus 2019 first quarter is up fivefold. Right. So like we're now talking it was $185.3 billion of net inflow on top of a base of two trillion with a T dollars of ESG focused funds. So you go like, why am I super excited to be in the private equity world in circular economy? The capital flows of or the, the markets have already decided. I just don't know that all the companies in the world have figured that out, but the markets have decided. So this is no longer a hobby. These aren't cottage industries. This is a mainstream shift. Yeah, it's yeah. And it like it, where we started the conversation when I started back in 2010, 2011, you know, no not many companies or many people were thinking about this. Now all of these companies are are have teams of people working on this stuff. So well, let's build on that just to land the point. Um, and then I want to get into more of the practice of this, but um, maybe myths and and how you overcome those and put this stuff into practice. But um, ESG, my understanding is that it started out as essentially a, a, a better investment thesis, a way to sort of understand the potential future value of an organization by looking more broadly at the business and, and seeing whether or not they were attending to their ecosystem and a broader set of set of indicators that would suggest whether or not they're going to succeed and lead in the future. Um, I guess, check that thinking. And then based on that, how is it playing out as investment thesis as you build the argument for ESG? Because I don't think you need to do this on a moralistic ground. This is like good business. Oh, yeah, it's great for business. It's like, so if you are not, uh, I'll put it in the positive. If you are generally thinking about a broad range of issues which fall under the umbrella of ESG, it means you're paying attention to more components of your business and your supply chain and your stakeholders, back to that concept, than not. right? And so, in general, whether it's correlation or causality, or maybe a little bit of both, companies which are heavily invested in ESG tend to outperform the market. And that's sort of what you know, not to keep quoting Morningstar, but that's sort of a you know a big study that Morningstar put out, I think June or July of 2020, sort of showing the trends over time of market performance and financial performance of companies that had strong ESG focuses um, versus those that did not. And so the big myth of ESG is not necessarily great for performance because you can get distracted has been, I would uh, by and large disproven. It's not 100% true because certain companies have great ESG strategies and don't perform well. Uh, but more often than not, the data is sort of now coming to bear that those companies which were broad ESG thinkers outperform the market. Great. What other misconceptions and myths are you seeing that that matter? Yeah. So they're, 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 the first one is, it's you know we talked a little bit about it in terms of overall financial performance. Well, let's talk sort of a micro quarter to quarter, which is it's bad for cash flow. Oh, I've got to invest in mitigating my carbon. Oh, I've got to invest in rethinking my water strategy and literally my physical infrastructure so I can reuse brown water or something in my in my data center. So as an example, um, that I guess technically is somewhat true. Depends on how you actually quantify value. Like if I invest a lot of money to retrofit my buildings, you know, but I'm saving massive amounts of energy and my payback is less than two years, which is generally the case when people do these kind of retrofits, 
Yeah, the myth is, oh, it's bad for cash flow if you want to sort of overemphasize that you got to put some capital in. But it's like any CapEx, like you're investing capital to get a return. I would argue you get a huge return. Like my own experience at Microsoft is, you know, we did when we first started down this journey, you know, we spent a little bit of money, but the return on investment was off the charts. So that's sort of myth number one. Myth number two, which I think is now gone, but a couple of years ago was it's not great for valuation. Now, actually, these companies get a premium. So that's a legacy myth. I think it's largely gone. Uh, investor interest. Um, and then the other myth is, and this is unfortunately still true, which is sustainability or ESG is some like CSR thing. It's not core to the business. Like People who don't understand that ESG has to be core to their business haven't unlocked the value. They're not going to because it's a mindset shift. It's about thinking about your business fundamentally differently than the way you used to think about it and finding opportunities to make a lot more money and be a positive contribution to society. That third one is super interesting. And I want to go back to your experience at Microsoft. You mentioned phase three was when they got into competitive advantage and you know new forms of business value through ESG, almost like you're in third and fourth gear and you're really weaving it deeply into your business and using it to your advantage. What what did it take there to get to that stage? You have to go through all those stages. Maybe that took five, seven years and a lot of uh, effort on your part and others. Well, I think there is, there is the answer is I'm not sure today if it would take, in fact, I am sure today that it would not take as much time because the problem or, or was that being a little too early in the market can be tough. Right, so let's take the issue I was just talking about, which is energy efficiency in buildings. If the market writ large is not very focused on reducing its energy consumption, producing the software or partnering with companies to produce software to optimize energy efficiency in your buildings won't take off. And that was a little bit of the experience, which is we were pushing the envelope. We did this thing where actually Microsoft took its 100 plus buildings in its corporate headquarters and instrumented them up. And we were gathering 500 million data points a day. And after we had done that, which took about a year, we then spent a, a year evangelizing this. But eventually the market caught up, right? Mm -hmm. And so it did create competitive advantage. Now, today, I think the market's much more in tune with these kinds of things, but there's still lots of those kinds of examples where weaving it into your core creates competitive advantage. The question is, what's the timeline? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense where you, I mean, we've all seen lots of examples where you have the right idea and timing is everything. You're a little premature in the market and the, uh, and it takes too much effort to actually create, stoke the demand and find that um, product market fit. Um, I know that you've also, in your work on this, been developing a maturity model to assess an individual organization and how far along it is on its ESG journey. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that starts to get into a little bit of the how as we think about stages of maturation that you might have to go through. And maybe you can leapfrog some of these to make faster progress. There are kind of four levels, in my opinion, of how you think about this, right? There's sort of the basic, which is you're not violating any of the core tenets of what ESG is about. Um, then you've got developing, which is you're working on stuff, you're starting to get some governance models together, you've got some checklists, you've got some level of risk assessment, and you're sort of you've started down the path of trying to become more proactive. Then you and that, you know, if you go basic and developing, that's a significant 
percentage of the of the world's companies today, right? Now, when you start to think about performing, now you've got ESG checklists and metrics. You've got board, like a, maybe a board charter or a group on the you know a special committee. You've got it in your operations. You've got company goals, and you've started to put people's bonuses and compensation tied to ESG performance, and you've done a lot of risk assessment. Right? And now, the top category, which is probably fewer than 5%, and, and is leading. And there's very few companies there. So, I'll give you an example in the company that we're now invested in, who I would not put as leading yet, right? which is in February, there was a big storm in Texas, right? The company, had it been a leading ESG company, would have looked at its supply chain and said, where do we have geographic risk for climate-based or weather-based? Doesn't that, you know, whether or not you want to say that was a climate change issue or not in some ways is irrelevant. But if you're being very thoughtful about an ESG strategy, you would have a risk assessment that says, oh, I've got and materials that are impacting my business, where do each of those get sourced from? And what happens if there's a disruptive weather event, a tornado, a hurricane, a deep freeze, a heat wave, a power outage, whatever? Okay. That's where you start to become leading. I love that. So let's let's pivot off of this. And I would love to hear your thoughts on on the how. And so this is and we're starting to get it. It's like, what do you do? Let's say you're advising, pick an organization. It either general or specific on saying, and and they want to actually make progress, and they're interested in gaining competitive advantage and uh, to thrive over the long run by applying ESG well. What's your advice for them? I would say pick a time in the future, not too far. Don't do. I mean, many companies set twenty fifty goals, which is fine, but think you're sitting in a room three years, maybe five at most from today. What do you want to be true? What are the outcomes you want, right? Financially, behaviorally, perceptually, like what, what do you want your customers and your stakeholders to think? And what would need to be true in order to get there that is not currently true? It sounds easy, but having now done this, you know, not just with Microsoft, but with a bunch of other companies, it's really hard, right? It's easy-ish to make some broad statements like, oh yeah, we want to be, you know, Carbon zero, net zero impact by 2050. Okay, great. Well, what are you going to do tomorrow morning in 2021 to get you on that journey? And where do you want to be by 2025? Do you want to be 50%, 80%, 30%? I don't know. Like, okay, and what would, what would need to be true, right? And then the other part of this exercise, which is critical, which is what are your guiding principles? Because the challenge that I see and have experienced is when you're in a room and you don't agree on the guiding principles, you can, it's really hard to come to a conclusion. Because what's guiding you? Like, I have an opinion, and Michael, you have an opinion, and somebody else in the room has an opinion, and we're all coming from it from a different values perspective. I'll just say in my own experience at Microsoft, having some great guiding principles that we largely, in fact, we all agreed to when we started this process, made it much easier to make informed decisions because you would look at it through that lens and say, oh, only two things can be true. Either we can't do this, or we can, because it's consistent with our guiding principles, or our guiding principles are wrong, and we got to go revisit those. So, I mean, you guys do this all the time. I mean, this is one of the great things about your business, which is like, 
this ideation and inf- like really thinking hard about these questions is the most, this is why I'm talking about it so much. It is the most critical part of this process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and having those hard conversations is the process. That's where a lot of the value is. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So this is great. So two, two things, which may sound deceptively simple, but they're actually messy, very challenging, but vital. Well, establishing a sort of near-term vision for the future and through that, having all of these hard conversations where you're making real decisions implicitly and explicitly as part of that, defining a set of principles that can help guide your decision-making and then testing those and revising those if you realize they're not serving you really well. Also really challenging because you you want to get that those to be the fewest number of most essential ones. You want to be clear and actionable uh, and you get hung up in language and different interpretation, things like that. So, but those two are vital, makes tons of sense to me. What else? Is there a third, fourth yeah, step? There is a third. The, I'd say that the next biggest one where most failures happen is on the accountability. Right. Uh, you know, I'll say I was super lucky at Microsoft in that when we originally rolled this thing out, the discussion was we're going to have a carbon tax. And one model would be, oh, some central group at a company pays for it. A different model, which we proposed and the company approved was, no, 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 everybody pays for it. It gets distributed everywhere. And the theory was, if somebody else is going to solve the problem, I don't have to worry about it. I don't need to think about it. It's like, no, no, no. You need accountability as broad as you possibly can get it. So that's the classic mistake. I want the CEO to have accountability. I want their bonus tied to it. I want the COO, the head of operations and manufacturing. I want the head of sales to think about it. Like people need to wake up every day and know that their compensation and their accountability and their performance metrics and KPIs are tied to ESG. If you don't do that and you expect some centralized group to solve the problem start to finish, it it won't work. Yeah, that makes sense. Related to that, maybe this is a companion to it, but I love the idea that you shared with me in the past uh, on how to activate an organization, the the ingenuity within an organization to solve these problems. And there was, I I think at Microsoft, a a system by which you could recommend innovative solutions and unlock funding to make those real. Yes, absolutely. You know, that was, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, which is, there is a crazy amount of in, you know, ingenuity, innovation in the world, right? And lying literally in people's heads. And the problem is now we're talking in the world of ESG, the G column in governance. How do you unlock people's creativity and potential and give them a framework and a systematic way to actually unlock capital and or time? to go after these issues. So yeah, we had a fund, people could apply to the fund and then if it got approved, we would work with them. In some cases, we had to move people around to get access to the right teams and stuff. But it started with people writing up their proposals of things they could do differently. And in fact, we're doing the exact same thing in the company I just invested in uh, around its waste stream. And solutions are coming from all parts of the company, right? Because the person who's literally touching the materials every single day has the most insight into how to reduce the waste streams. Yeah, I love that because there's there's a theme that I keep seeing in stakeholder capitalism, which is 
inverting the decision-making processes and sort of flipping the script on power, some of these dynamics, just going from tops down to bottoms up or finding a nice balance between the two where management management's job is to make these commitments, to recognize what's important for the business and maybe redefine the right problems, possibly in, in partnership with people throughout the organization, but then activate the organization to solve them. And, and yes. classically, we saw this uh, a, a bunch at Microsoft and other organizations. You get management believing, and I was probably guilty of this in my career a number of times, that it's my responsibility to come up with the big answers and then people execute against them. And I think things have been shifting in a really healthy way. Maybe you want to talk about that in this context a little further. You know, I think I, th- I think what you're saying, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like, how do you empower people across and within an organization to be the engine of transformation? Yes. Right? And that's... That is totally a G part of the governance model. You know, we haven't talked much about S, right? But ideally you have goals around, you know, diversity and inclusion. And so you've got diversity of thought as opposed, you know, in addition to diversity of other types like, you know, gender or race and and other stuff. But, you know, that is when the magic happens. Not three smart people who will come up with good ideas if they're sitting in a room. But when you've got, you know, depending on the size, you know, a significant percentage of your organization, regardless of the size, empowered to be creative and then have a systematic way to actually submit those submissions. I mean, especially in a bigger company, that becomes significantly more difficult than, in a, you know, the company I invested in is pretty small, certainly compared to a Microsoft. Uh, so how do you get that done? Yeah. And my, and my mind is going even more broadly to, okay, awesome if you could do it in your company. What if you could light it up across your stakeholder ecosystem and co-create <laughs> with supply chain partners and distribution partners and communities? And yeah, and I would I would suggest that you know we did a little bit of that when I was at Microsoft, but you know since I've left, I mean it's uh, it's incredibly impressive to see what what they've done in terms of you know I think it's a billion dollars if I'm not mistaken in terms of a, a, a fund that people can apply to and they've invested in a bunch of super interesting stuff, you know a lot of, and it's not unique to Microsoft. It's just one I'm, I'm more familiar with. It's a it's it's great, right? How do you get your supply chain? Because now you're rethinking partnerships, right? Which is this artificial idea that your company ends at the boundaries of your employees is, is kind of antiquated. And yeah. how do you co-invent solutions? In fact, that's one of the things we're looking at now with some of our supply chain folks, right? Which is, wait, wait how do we jointly solve this problem versus us dictating you, you have to sci- so- solve it or we'll just solve it for you, right? That doesn't work as well. And talk a little bit more about how that factors into governance. So when, when we say governance, how should we be thinking about that? Because I think you have a broader and more active concept there than people might think initially when they see that term. Yeah, so let's maybe put some building blocks in, which is there's a sort of fundamental level of governance, which is how, does it, how do things operate and how do they get done, right? Like, what are your checklists? How do you get these things done? Um, how does there some level of, of base level accountability? That's sort of a, a sort of foundational level basic, if we want to go back to the framework level of governance. But now you actually start to say, no, 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 no. How does this really get embedded 
at a senior level across leadership because many companies still haven't really embedded this at the senior levelship level. They may have a person, but it's very different than having a group of people or the majority of people at the top level of the company. And then how do you actually create, especially in a large organization, cross-functional roles and accountability, right? And then if you can figure out how to do that internally, you know, division A and division B and division C working together, how do you actually think about it in terms of your supply chain? So now you've got your upstream and maybe your shipping and your transport and all that. So inbound and outbound, that's sort of, let's call it level three or this performing level. And now if you want to get to leading, this is where I was going a little bit earlier in our conversation, which is what are you going to do with the end user and what's your partnership with them? How are you going to get those materials back? Right Now you're talking about a much broader, I mean, we started in governance, which is, you know, a couple of people looking at a couple of, of checklists. And now all of a sudden we're talking about, no, no, no. My governance model is actually my relationship with my, everybody, everybody in my value chain and my end customer. And how do I get the stuff back? And now I, I'm thinking about my world very differently from a governance model, which is my customer isn't a one-time transaction, right? My customer is basically a partner who happens to pay me. And I'm a partner who gives them a service in exchange for that. Right? Now, that I mean, Philips is a great example of this too. Where they're thinking about lighting as a service. Like all sorts of business are, are now starting to think about this. In fact, one of, one of the companies I looked at recently was doing this with apparel. You're not buying the apparel. You're kind of using it for a while, but then you're giving it back. Right? I love that concept. Yeah, And the concept of a customer as a partner. Yeah. Over time. That, yeah. That, that's where the world starts to get really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just to play back on governance, essentially, it's about operationalizing these concepts and commitments at scale within your organization and across your ecosystem. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, back to where we were about brainstorming and bringing people to help you think about it, it's like, well, what would be a KPI like with your end user if you think of them as a partner? What commitments do you have to the customer beyond delivering them a good a good or great product at a good or great price, like that's fantastic. But that's where you go from there. Yeah. Like what what is success well beyond just a transaction? That's awesome. I want to make sure we have time for the magic wand question. So if if <laughs> if if you were, and I know you are, very interested in accelerating and deepening, uh, you know the 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 business world's adherence and operationalizing of these ideas for ESG, what is one thing you would have business leaders do tomorrow? It's a great question. You know, I'm tempted to sort of think about a tactical thing, right? Hire somebody, do something or bring in a consultant or something. But I actually think it is, if you haven't already done it, you got to think different. You got to flip the model. You got to flip the model where you don't append your approach with stakeholder capitalism or ESG. You start your program with that thought. Like bake it into the just like you wouldn't run a business without thinking about profit and loss, right? That you just wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I don't think you should run your business without thinking about. ESG and however you want to define that and you know stakeholder capitalism 
in a different way than you would think about your finances or your legal or any of these other core, core competencies. Just fundamentally reimagine it through that lens and then yeah, you'll, because, you'll see and, things differently. Yeah. And then, and don't, don't fall into the trap or listen to the old myth of, well, that could hurt profitability. Cause at least in my experience with many companies now, it unlocks growth. It doesn't curtail growth. Great. One last question. You're, you you have the opportunity to talk to yourself 10, 15 years ago when you're just getting started in this space. Uh, what, what would your advice be? You know, this is a really hard question because I, I almost have two opposite answers. Um, one is be patient, right? Because I very much felt like you know, the, the metaphor of pushing a boulder up a mountain is kind of how I felt early in my my yeah, like my time on sustainability. Person, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And it can be brutal. Like I saw a lot of my colleagues just burn out. Right? You've got to have just some good wins and some luck. And like I said, I was super lucky to work at a place like Microsoft where they were very receptive to aggressive change. Uh, so, you know, one would have been maybe be patient. Uh, but the other is, we're kind of out of time, so go faster, right? So those two things, <laughs> so maybe that balance was was about right. But I would say also um, to my younger self, be more conscious of the context of meeting people where they are versus where you want them to be. So taking a company that's basic and hoping that they're going to be leading tomorrow, that's an unrealistic goal. Be happy that like, okay, this company's basic, but now all of a sudden they're starting to ask themselves some questions they didn't ask themselves before. And so that's where I get to the be patient side, which is be much more sensitive to meeting people where they were. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic, Rob. I appreciate it. It's always great to talk with you and I look forward to checking back in soon. You're up to good Thank stuff. you so much. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. The Hunt for the How is a production of Intentional Futures, a strategy and design studio based in Seattle, Washington. This episode was produced and mixed by Gedney Barclay, who also created the original music. Our lead researcher and production assistant is Malia Nakamura, and I'm your host, Michael Dix. I encourage you to email me with any thoughts and questions to michael at intentionalfutures.com. You can subscribe to The Hunt for the How on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.